Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is John Coleman, your host, uh, and I wanted to float something new with you today. Usually we dedicate the first episode of the month to a feature we call Marks on the Markets. But this month, instead of focusing on the macro investing environment, we wanted to highlight a recent episode released at Faith Driven Entrepreneur between an entrepreneur and investor based in Israel. The tragedy of the Hamas terror attacks, the rise of global anti-Semitism, and the resulting war in the region have made the brokenness of the world even more acute and visible. So we wanted to invite some two leaders who have become friends of the faith-driven movement. Bader Mansour is the founder of NASDAQ with a Z, a company that develops solutions in Nazareth. He'll get more into this, but he comes from a unique perspective as a Palestinian and also an Israeli citizen, but most importantly, as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. As an executive for a network of 17 churches and one of the founders of a local seminary, Bader is also a recognized national leader within the Arab-speaking Christian community. Mordecai Wiseman is the founder and chairman of Israel First Fruits, an economic development agency for the local community of faith in Israel. He is also the founder of the Messianic Business Fellowship, which is the only national network for marketplace believers in Israel, both Jews and Arabs. He is a Jewish-Israeli follower of Yeshua, Jesus. Like most Israeli Jews, he served in the Israeli Defense Forces. His son is currently serving as well, and we are keeping his son in our thoughts and prayers. Let's listen to that conversation. Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night with so my whole house was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I try to divide our ignorance hides. We all wind up here together. Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Hey everyone, all opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed, and this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We have a special edition today. I'm here with Rusty, and Rusty and I are going to wade into um, 
just an amazing scene that's going on right now in the Middle East. We are not going to be talking much at all about politics. This is not what we do here. This is a podcast that is meant to help the body of Christ, particularly business owners and entrepreneurs, understand how much God loves them and what he is inviting them to as they participate in the marketplace. There are times when that mission that we are all on might seem relatively easy. It might seem sometimes when that mission is hard, there are times when the yoke is light, sometimes when it is heavy. But for today, we have this incredible opportunity to have this perspective of two dear brothers that we've known now for years. As Rusty said in the intro, we've featured them on some great video stories for context, and they have graciously allowed us to spend some time with them as they process where God has them and how they are seeing him at work, the questions they have, the prayers they're lifting up, and it's a special privilege to be with them for their perspectives about all of those things, hopefully with the goal today that we will all know more about how God loves us and that we would accept the invitation to participate in the work that he's doing, building the world when it is easy and when it is hard, when there are clear points for us to follow and when things are a little bit muddier. So today we go to Israel with Morty and Bader. Gentlemen, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. I know it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Morty, I'm going to start with you. I know that you got a sense this summer. We were at the Christian Economic Forum together, and you were starting to really feel keenly that something was afoot. You were troubled. You very eloquently shared with us at the Christian Economic Forum what was going on in Israel. And now we found ourselves a couple months later in a precarious situation that you and and your friend Bader are right in the middle of. And Morty, what are you thinking about this evening, Israel time? What's going on? Thank you, Henry. It's a privilege and an honor to share with the uh, FDE community. Um, yeah, it always seems like life in the Middle East is pregnant. Either something's going on or something's about to happen. But it's definitely, for me at least, since really early 2022, even 2021, there's this growing sense of apprehension in terms of what's lying ahead. And as you shared, uh, really with this latest government and some of the internal processes within Israel, I've been feeling grieved at things that I knew were coming, but were hard to observe in real time, sort of emerging before us. And then this crisis broke out eight days ago. And I think Israelis in general are reeling because we've never faced something quite like this and comes after eight months of internal conflict, nine months of internal conflict. So I guess the pressure of feeling squeezed now for a while, feeling like God is moving us in a undeniable way towards a certain direction and then real spike in pressure. Um, it's actually not a lot of fun, but we have to trust that God is squeezing out of us things that he is seeking to either remove or to produce from our lives. Um, I'm just hoping I'm producing light and salt. As you process all of this, you're doing this in the midst of a number of family, including your son. You served in the IDF. Your son is in the IDF. What, what are you praying for? Well, my first prayer is mercy. The enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And war is his favorite tool. And yet God 
will use the schemes of the enemy to advance his kingdom. He turns evil to good and he will. So we have to believe that despite everything that is going on, God is doing something profound. And yet all we can do is pray for mercy, pray for to be given the strength to stand up under the pressure to be used for good rather than participate in the orgy of death. It's easy to get drawn into the maelstrom of pain and suffering and trauma. And to some degree, that's what being in the world yet not of it means. It means that we mourn with those who mourn. We feel the pain of our people. And yet we also have a different identity and a different reality that is within us. And um, that's easy to say. It's very hard to walk through. So yeah, I'm a veteran and actually I'm my son is the fourth generation of our family serving in the Israeli military. And um, it's easy to worry. It's not just I my imagine son. imagine it is. Yes. I mean, I have literally dozens and dozens of my friends serving right now. Of our tiny congregation of 400 people, over 50 are under arms right now, either as enlisted or reservists. So... It's easy to surrender to fear or worry, and it's that daily choice to look to the Lord and uh, trust Him that He is in control. And it's really not how do I change circumstances, but how do I respond in a way that glorifies God. Morty, thank you. Uh, Bader, I'm going to ask the same of you. Such a privilege to have you, as Rusty mentioned in the intro and your story at the most recent conference. So gave me more of a perspective of what it looks like to be a Palestinian Christian in Nazareth. How are you processing this? What are you praying for? It has been a very uh, heartbreaking situation, you know, being a Palestinian and an Israeli at the same time. My uh, news feed is mixed with Israeli sources and Palestinian sources for a long time. So first of all, there is the grief and the sadness of all the people that have been killed in the massacre that happened just Saturday, you know, watching the news, heartbreaking. Uh, I have lots of friends that lost loved ones also from the Israeli side. It has been very heavy on us here. At the same time, being I have maybe the privilege or maybe the the problem of belonging to these two troubled people, you know, so I am also a Palestinian. I am also in grief for my Palestinian people as well. That, uh, first of all, this was something they produced, you know, something horrible like this. At the same time, we are seeing the developments that are happening, the war uh, that is going on, you know, in Gaza, and also the, the innocent people being killed. And at the same time, looking at the whole situation and the whole history. It's not a, you know, this is, I don't see this as an event in itself. You know, this is a continuation of my whole life. And maybe before I was born of a conflict, you know, in this country where I am. And uh, it has been very heavy. We are praying, Lord, for mercy, you know, on the people of Israel. Mercy on the people of Gaza and of the whole people of this region, you know, on the Palestinians also on the West Bank on the people who are also uh, in the surrounding countries. We are praying that this will not escalate into a larger war. We're praying for our safety. You know, 
Palestinian Arabs who are Israeli citizens don't serve in the army, so I don't have immediate family who is in the army. But uh, we are afraid. We are afraid. Our prayers are for the Lord to have mercy and to send peacemakers. We need more peacemakers to come and help us. We probably couldn't solve it ourselves. And we need people to come and help us get this whole Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, resolved in such a way that, that we couldn't do it on our own. We need help. So this is what I'm praying for God to send more peacemakers and for the, the peacemaker himself to intervene and be with us at this time. Amen. Amen. You know, we live in this, as we, as Henry said, we live in this complex time and Morty and Bader, you guys are right in the middle of probably one of the most complex issues going on right now in the world. At the same time, we have a background that's really developing all over the world around a sense of identity. You know, where does our identity reside? And we've mentioned, you know, the two of you come from very different backgrounds. Bader, you're a Palestinian Israeli. Morty, you're a Jewish Israeli. Can you share with us, both of you, how your faith has helped you think differently about those who have different worldly identities? Can you talk a little bit about that? Morty, you want to start first? Well, I think, again, just to provide a little bit more nuance, Israel's home not merely to Jews and Arabs, but actually both in the Jewish side and the Arab side, identities are highly complex. I won't speak to all the Arab community, but you have Muslim Arabs, you have Christian Arabs, you have Bedouins, you have Druze, and on the Jewish side, you have people from not only that were native born or born in this land, but who've come from dozens of countries. Uh, and we have Jews from what we would call Middle Eastern background or Sephardic. We have European Jews, we have Orthodox, and so many different identities mix in that even the idea of Israeli is highly complex. Now, as a believer, I'm not only Israeli, and I'm not only a Jew, and I'm not only an Ashkenazi Jew, and belong within even other subgroups within Israel, but as a follower of Yeshua, I have this sort of overarching identity. And we tend to think of things, I think, in hierarchical. And I sometimes, I find that it's unhelpful to say, oh, my citizenship is in heaven. So that kind of like vetoes all the other identities. I think that's not helpful, actually, in daily life. And we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, that people from every nation, tribe, and language will be standing before the throne. God created our ethnic identities. He's created our cultural identities. And so my kingdom identity, my identity as a Jew who follows Yeshua, infuses, is at the center of all those other identities, it informs them, hopefully transforms them redeems those. And, and that richness, the diversity that God created and making us so different, then gets elevated, perhaps, through our kingdom identity. And sometimes it's a veto. Sometimes there's something in my background that is just wrong. There's a cultural sin, uh, a heritage that we hold on to that is just not pleasing to the Lord, and that needs to be removed. But more often than not, it's something that needs to be fixed or healed or redeemed because the root of it comes from God. So maybe that's overly theoretical. But as a believer, for example, I'm a combat guy, right? I'm a veteran. My son serves in the army. There's a side of me that understands the need to fight against those who have a murderous worldview. 
and yet as a child of God, highly aware of my own sin, to recognize that these Hamas terrorists are people who need God. They're sick in the sense that they were raised on hate. We're raised to believe that their highest calling is to not only die, but to kill for Allah. And, you know, the highest prayer for them would be that they would get revelation and be saved, just as Saul of Tarsus very sincerely persecuted the early church. And yet, I also recognize that I have a mandate to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And so, here I am, a combat veteran. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? I have a calling to protect those around me, and yet I have to pray for their salvation, even as I have to take a step in standing against them. It's that complexity and that nuance that is not immediately resolvable in the here and now, and yet I have to seek God to, in every given moment, respond in a way that honors him. So that's how my faith informs my identities. <laughs> mm. no, that's beautiful. That's beautifully said. I mean, I'm really... Uh... I'm emotionally struck there by what you said about Saul of Tarsus. And I think, boy, I wish we could stop and everybody just think about that more often, that if you were a Christian at that time, right, and you're watching Saul and what he did, that there were people who were praying for him, right? There must have been people who were praying to God, remove this person, remove this person, and that his conversion from Saul to Paul, the blinding of the light, could have also been an answer to someone's prayers. Never would have framed that without you speaking about that. So thank you so much for that. Bader, anything to add here? Yes, I think, uh, you know, also my identity is probably more complicated. But, you know, I'm an Israeli. And uh, most of my, you know, newspapers or television, I watch Israeli television read Israeli newspapers, I speak Hebrew fluently, I'm an Israeli, I have lots of Israeli friends, uh, so I have lots of love to my country, I care about my country. At the same time, I am a Palestinian. Palestinians in 1948 uh, were scattered, some became refugees in the Gaza Strip, some became refugees in Lebanon and Jordan and some in the West Bank, and, and some stayed in Israel. I am one of them. You know, my parents in 1948 became Israeli citizens. So I am also an Israeli citizen, but yet I'm a Palestinian. So I also have this sympathy and love to my people. You know, I love my country, but I love my people as well and feel for my people. And I also, you know, my prayer language or my home language is Arabic. And, you know, I am Christian Arab, but I also have lots of, you know, Muslim Arab friends and some are also religious, some are less religious, and I also read lots of newspapers in Arabic and uh, feed and uh, have friends everywhere, also in Gaza, also in the West Bank, also everywhere. So to being able to see also the point of view of the Palestinians and trying to understand if there could be anything to be understood about this whole, uh, I would say, barbaric attack, but at the same time, why did it happen? And why did these people... I don't think these people came just because they wanted to kill. It's part of a complex, you know, situation that has been going on for a long time with lots of injustice and uh, neglecting the Palestinian cause for so many years by just saying that these people can be there for 16 years in a big jail and nobody cares about them. 
seeing the world move on and they are still there, nothing, nobody cares about them. So I don't justify what they did. Try to understand what's going on and what hope these people have and trying to have empathy to the people of Gaza in addition to the people of Israel. So as a follower of Jesus, I look at this in such a way, you know, you know, I'm not trying to give two points of view here. I'm trying to say that, you know, in addition to all this, I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, where most people in this country, you know, the 14 million people or 15 million people that live from the river to the sea, both Palestinians and Jews, most of them don't know Jesus. They need Jesus badly. So what is my role as a follower of Jesus in this whole thing? And, you know, can a few thousand people make any difference in this whole craziness that's going on. So I see my role as the follower of Jesus is to follow the footsteps of Jesus in whatever I do by showing love to everybody, by showing empathy like Jesus would meet the mother of the dead son and will go and speak to her, show love to these people and these people, and also spread the good news of Jesus that he is the savior of the universe, savior of the world. He loves us and he wants the best for all of us. And this is our calling. You know, uh, it's hard to do it these days, but at the same time, this is why we are here, to stand up for showing the love of Christ to everybody around us. So I, I want to go a little deeper into this because um, I'm going to frame this in a way. When people have differing views, and they bring that into the workplace, which we see more and more of happening. I was joking with somebody the other day. I said, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't talk politics or religion in the workplace, right? And today, which I'm very happy that we can share our faith in the workplace, we also share here in the United States, we start to share our political views in the workplace and our political views have been divisive in many ways. Yet you all, are in a situation where you must live and work together with people who have much, much different views, views that actually are beyond just opinions, have turned into actions. Can you share your insights for other faith-driven entrepreneurs about how best to live and work together with those who have very, very differing views? And not only differing views for the short term, but for the long term, because, you know, we pray for shalom, we pray for peace in the Middle East. And these wars, they seem to, you know, they come, they go, they never really go away, but it becomes acute. And then when it becomes less acute, you have to go back and work together and live together. So you have a unique perspective. I think you can share for our listeners on how to work together, live together with very, very differing views. Help us with that. Yes, just something about, uh, you know, here in Israel, you know, I'm also a little bit uh, old. Here in Israel, we spoke politics and religion at the workplace before you, you know, I worked also in America where we couldn't talk politics. Here we talk politics all the time. You know, it's part of life here at the workplace. So when I worked in an Israeli company that was 400 Jews and one, Palestinian. I was the first Arab to join the company. You know, it was uh, tough at the beginning. Lots of prejudice, like, you know, a Palestinian in our company. Who's this guy? What's his story? Uh, lots of heated discussions at work 
talking about differences. But I think this is where our role as agents of change, as people who are followers of Jesus comes into the place, where we can show a different face of our people. Because people don't know, you know, the, the Jews I worked with never met an Arab, other than maybe uh, somebody at the gas station. So they finally meet an Arab engineer and they talk to him. And I also did not have these close relationships with Jews at the time. So when people begin to talk, and I think if we bring the ethics of the kingdom into our discussions, where we also show respect, we can make change. It's probably small, you know, it's one person at a time, or, uh, you know, few people. But I think this is where it has been challenging, but we grow together. Sadly, when we have war, we go back. You know, the tension go high, people have very strong opinions and things go back. You know, the relationships can be very hard. But I think if we live together, we know that we are gonna work together, we have the same goal, and we can talk and we disagree. Like, you know, Mordechai and I, we can disagree about many things, but we can still be uh, brothers in Christ and friends, show softness, Empathy, love to one another. Uh, there could be a way forward, in my opinion. That was uh, that was beautiful. Maybe eighty percent of our listeners are listening to us in the United States and wondering what does this conflict have to do with them. And you just showed very much so. I mean, when, you know, when you're one person of Arab extraction in a larger majority spot. And sometimes Christ followers feel that way in the marketplace today. Now, a lot of our audience, most of our audience are entrepreneurs and business owners where they had this opportunity to set the culture. And I also think that in addition to just struggling with what does it look like to share our faith winsomely and the reason for the hope we have and amidst a, a discussion with people of differing views, there's also, I think, this sense in America of you know, I just I just want to run my business. I want to grow my company. I want to grow 20% year over year, maybe quarter over quarter. And gosh, all this political stuff is just really just an inconvenient hindrance to me achieving my dream because what I'm really trying to do, and I'm casting some disparagement against uh, some folks generally here with hopefully that this ends up being encouraging and this appropriate level of challenge, which is, look, there's a real battle here. And it's not against flesh and blood, it's against evil. And it's in the marketplace. And God chose us for such a time as this. And we can see some of these things happen in Bible studies. We see this in our scriptural reading. And yet, there's this reminder that you guys are living through things right now, that there is a world at war, and God chose us for a time as this. And this concept of maybe coasting to our funeral and running our businesses, and maybe we have triple the growth, and we hand it to the next generation, and we go ahead and we retire, and we play golf, and we move to the beach, and God calls us home. You guys are living a different narrative. You're not thinking about, well, maybe I work a couple more years and I can kind of cash out and get that country club on the Red Sea or on the Med, right? I mean, there's some beautiful beaches in Israel, but you guys aren't thinking about that right now. You think that God has put you on earth for a different type of mission. You guys have both spent a lot of time in America, and I don't want you to you know, just unfairly rattle the cages of a Western entrepreneur, but what are you learning about faith and mission and purpose and where God has called you in a way that might be relevant for somebody who's not in the battle right now, maybe, 
But how do you reflect on that? You've been in a war zone for so long, and yet you interact so much with folks in America and in the West that don't have the same type of perspective. What would be an encouragement or challenge to them as they look to learn more about the living God through their work? Well, let me take a swing at that. Trying to tie the previous question to that last statement, I think they're linked. Even if, let's say, you're not as informed or as mission-driven to impact culture, if you are merely just trying to be successful and coast to retirement, you would have to still acknowledge that in these days, usually wealth is created through people and people form culture and politics is merely an expression of our culture. And so when the debate is about who's right and wrong, when that's what we're fighting over, and we believe that actually our propositional truth will achieve victory, convince someone to come to our side, then we get into all kinds of trouble. And in the Middle East, when we recognize that we could talk all day, we've been talking for thousands of years, and we haven't necessarily convinced each other that truth needs to be incarnational, that's why Jesus showed up in the flesh, that my calling as an entrepreneur is to engage people. And in fact, the way I produce value and hopefully the value that I attempt to produce is fundamentally around the flourishing of human beings, around them encountering God and his kingdom. I can't convince them of that. I can't argue them into that state. What I can do is be curious about them, to actually try to understand who they are. Why do they tick the way they do? This is really how we have to handle conflict here in the Middle East. We're not going to win. When I walk with my Arab and Palestinian brethren, our organization of First Roots, our board, our staff, and the people we serve are Jews and Arabs and Gentiles. We do not agree on a lot of stuff. And yet we have a commitment to walk together. We have a commitment to care for each other and to care with each other for others. And so truth is no longer a club in the sense of hitting people over the head, but rather truth is incarnational. And truth is how I engage you and how do I want to understand why you are the way you are, why you behave the way you do, not so I can convince you that I'm right and you're wrong, but rather that I could show love, that I could see how God might have called us to walk together. And I believe that entrepreneurs who get that will build better cultures. So it's not even about politics. It's about creating a culture of listening, of caring, of engaging people. When we do that, we build not only organizations that are more effective, but we are the outcome that we wish to produce, which is people that care about people, people who invest in people. And then our unity is not about uniformity or agreeing on a set of principles, but rather the choice to walk together, which is what marriage is two people that are different, that don't agree, and yet choose to produce life together, to do life and produce life together. That was beautiful. Morty, thank you. Um, Badr. Yes, I wanted to maybe answer a little bit differently about, uh, you know, I think most entrepreneurs here who are, you know, followers of Jesus and also others, I think, uh, have a deep passion to do something a little bit different than just making a successful company. They want to see change in the society they are in. At NASDAQ, you know, most of the people here serve in a church or in a, some kind of parachurch organization. And we see this is part of our calling, not just to make software, 
and uh, you know build a great company which we are but also to make change as Christians in our sphere in our uh, society and I think lots of people also in America are you know faith-driven entrepreneurs and others as well who have a deep passion to help others I like to mention a story that touched my heart and actually broke my heart a few days ago one of the entrepreneurs he's a Jew an Israeli Jew, one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Israel, Eyal Waldman. He is the founder of Melanox, somebody I admire because he has built a very strong company here in Israel. And he has been also one of these companies who hired lots of Palestinians also to work in his company. Some of the managers in the company are also Palestinians, which is not taken for granted in Israel. But he also decided to open a branch in Gaza Strip and also open a branch in the West Bank, and a few days ago, his daughter was killed in the barbaric attack during the party you know, that was going on near the Gaza border. He went and he found his daughter. And I don't know him, but you know, when I read this, I cried and I went home to sleep, you know, just like, I was so devastated. And he said, I still believe in peace. I still believe in peace. And I tried to find his email and sent him a note, you know, just an encouragement and condolences. Lots of people here in Israel, you know, have passion to see a different kind of Israel and a different kind of situation, you know, going on here. We as faith-driven entrepreneurs are called to do more on this, you know, and uh, admire my friends at First Fruit that are doing excellent work, you know, bringing Arabs and Jews together, working together, and, you know, others as well. So I think entrepreneurs usually in these places have passion, and I think lots of people all around the world have passion to see change in their societies. Here it's a bit about conflict and about these kind of things, you know, because we are in essence a war zone, but you know, I encourage all entrepreneurs to take a stand on a subject that they care for and do something about it, in addition to cashing out a great company and going to play golf, you know, in the Pacific Ocean. So I want to switch gears for just a bit and talk a little bit about running a business in these kinds of moments, right? In these moments of crisis. So you're both entrepreneurs. Just give us practical advice. How do you continue to lead a business during the midst of these situations going on in the backgrounds like the ones you're facing? Well, I don't know if I can give good advice. I can tell you what I did, which is initially I just gave myself another 10 minutes in bed I just to collect myself. <laughs> And more seriously, recognizing that it's so easy to throw yourself in. And in the moment of crisis, in the season of crisis, there'll be many times that as a leader, you're called to step up and step into the gap. But if you're the only one doing that and you're doing that constantly, you will not be around when sort of the, the key moment arrives. So you also have to pace yourself and you have to recognize you cannot win every battle and you don't have to be the only person who steps into the breach. As an entrepreneur, you're called to galvanize. And yet, in order to galvanize, so you, you have to be able to lead by example. You often are the first to step up. You also have to acknowledge, though, you're human. There's nothing, in my opinion, more powerful in leadership than a vulnerable leader who, rather than being the he-man or the she-man or she-woman, you know, the one who seems to have all the answers and is always like, you know, once more to the breach, my friends, they first acknowledge that they're afraid, that it's hard, that they're hurting, that they're frustrated. 
if you don't acknowledge humanity, it's hard for people to follow you. That's my experience as a military guy. In the Israeli army, they do not follow you if they don't trust you. And they don't trust you if they don't relate to you, if they don't believe that you understand who they are and understand the risks that they're about to take following you. And so listening, feeling, being vulnerable about our own feelings and expressing our pain. And then when everyone else is stuck and kind of like, oh, then stepping up and taking decisive action, being bold in your stance, galvanizing. And that shocks people out of that kind of place of, I don't know what to do, and they will follow you. So you have to be first human, and then you have to be leader. That's sort of the pattern that I've seen effective in these times. And knowing that the crisis is not going to be momentarily. You need to have good oxygen. You have to assess how long is this going to happen, go on, and therefore pace yourself as well. I'm going to come to Bader in just a second, but uh, can I just dive in a little bit more on that, you know, being authentic? What about those who might be listening who are saying, I'm afraid to show that I don't know what's going on. I'm afraid to be weak in front of my team. I'm afraid to show that I have real emotions because, you know, they might look at me and say, well, you don't have your act together. What words of encouragement can you give? The highest form of leadership, in my opinion, is creating a safe environment where people can make mistakes and grow. If you are perfect, A, no one actually believes that. But B, everyone's going to try to be perfect. You will not be able to learn. And every mistake is catastrophic. And therefore, it all becomes a power struggle over your image. And without naming names or pointing out political figures, those leaders who spend their time working about and worrying about how they're perceived versus those that step up and say, you know what, we made a mistake, but right now we need to take care of business and fight. There's a clear, I mean, within my culture where we have developed a clear understanding of what effective leadership is, we will not follow those people who are just concerned about their image. It's clear that they have clay feet. We will not follow someone into death and fire if we don't feel that they understand really what they're doing, that they're actually worried about us versus them. And so my only encouragement to a leader who's afraid of showing weakness is to look to Jesus. You know, I'm assuming that everyone listening is a faith-driven entrepreneur. Jesus showed pain. Jesus showed that he is struggling. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is bitter unto death. He allowed himself to experience the pain and express it. And that gave him the reserves and the strength as a human. As he said, Lord, not my wills, but your be done. That wasn't some sort of you know faith on Prozac. That was a surrender of saying, I have faced death in my soul. Now I'm ready to face it with my body. And that's the highest form of leadership. I may not be helpful, but that's the model that I have. Oh, it's very helpful. Yeah, that's good. Really good. Potter, anything to add to that thing about, you know, how do we lead in these times of crisis? Yes, I mean, Mordechai put it in a very good way. I just would like to say that, you know, in companies where you have crisis, we act as if like families. You know, the families, different people react in different ways. We hug everybody. It's okay not to work for half a day or a day, or somebody wants to take a day off, or somebody's not producing, or somebody is home because his children are not at school, or they are crying at nights. It's fine. 
you know, it's part of life. You know, we are patient, we love everybody, and we pray for better days. I'm going to hand it back to Henry, but I'm going to ask the question again from another perspective. You know, Israel's known as a startup nation, right? You guys, you know, the country actually stepped forward and many, many startups come out of the culture of innovation out of Israel. In this time of crisis, what do you tell those customers and business partners that you have outside of Israel and other parts of the world to manage their perspective of how your business is doing and you know that there's their stability and can we count on you in this moment of crisis because entrepreneurs not only have to deal on the inside but they also have to think about the outside and what's the outside world looking at so what are you telling your partners and customers from around the other parts of the globe well i would say that 75 years of israeli industry has proven that we are both resilient and productive even during the times of crisis. That when the rockets are flying, we still export, we still produce. I think one of the ways in which Israelis deal with crisis is as much as we can maintain normalcy and not get bunkered down. Obviously, as Bader indicated, and as we're experiencing, there is a okay, gather yourself, there is a, a momentary pause where we're not just doing business as usual, but there's a definitely strong narrative and pattern in Israeli society that even in crisis, we try as much as possible to maintain normalcy and try to move forward and take the next step. It's not about solving everything, it's about just keep moving forward. And that history, that sort of proof that is in the pudding is what a lot of our international partners have come to rely on. And so frankly, at least in my history, people are first asking, hey, how's it going? How can we help? There's actually a lot of care, even from, if you will, hard-nosed business people, you know, before they say, hey, when is my product ready? It's like, hey, is there something we can do? What's going on? There is a season of favor and Israelis have learned to in that moment, gather strengths and keep on moving forward. And yeah, I think our track record shows that as a nation, we've recovered and grown after every crisis. And I think that's what the clients and customers of Israeli companies have come to expect. Yes, our customers are also, they all send emails with the troubleshooting problems or sales inquiries with first asking about us. And we usually tell them that we are fine and we don't talk too much about the problem. We want to talk about the issues that are for them important, which are solving their problems, you know. On the other side, so we try to do business as usual as much as possible because we don't want our customers to suffer or to think that we are not a viable company that will disappear sometime or something like this. And we have proved, you know, lots of things happened and we continued to do what we are doing. On the other side, you know, we have spoken to lots of our friends and business partners in the business world who are on the Jewish side, trying to just send them a note and say, how are you doing as well? Because, you know, it all started with this, I would call massacre, you know, on Saturday, you know, like uh, 10 days ago. Mostly, most people who were killed were Jews. And I know lots of my friends have friends that lost their lives or 
you know, they are somehow involved. So, you know, in business, lots of people become your friends, even though you just do business with them, but they are friends also in times of crisis. You ask about them, you just give them an encouragement. And I think this is the least we can do, just to, like people are asking about us, we are asking about the people that are suffering the most, which are the people in the south of Israel, and also our friends in Gaza, who we don't do business with, but we have church relations with the Baptist Church in Gaza. So we also ask about them, what's going on, how can we help, and how can we pray for you? So it's the whole society, you know, people asking about each other, making sure everybody's doing fine in this world. And at the same time, we don't want our customers to be worried that we are, you know, not strong, you know, we're not going to be here in the future. And we will be here, as we have always proven. And lots of companies, you know, have proven that they can be resilient, you know, they can be strong. With all difficulties, you know, we will continue doing what we are doing. Bader, uh, we like to finish every one of our episodes by asking our guests what they're hearing from God in His Word. Maybe it's today, maybe it's over the course of last week, but believing that God continues to speak to us through His people, through prayer and absolutely His Word. What are you hearing from Him? Yes, lots of uh, devotions. We had lots of prayer meetings. Our church services turned into places of comfort. Everybody's talking about this. People are turning to God. I wrote down two verses that spoke to me, uh, and not only this week, but in general, but more strongly this week. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. This is one. And another one. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. This has encouraged me yesterday in our Sunday morning service. So the Lord is good. He is with us in the midst of this difficulty. But we need to be acting justly, not only with our people, but with all people. And have mercy. Love it. Love mercy. And ask God for mercy, but also have mercy on the others. And be humble. I think we need to walk humbly these days, just trusting God more and not trusting our own abilities or our own strength, but just asking the Lord to work through us because we are weak. That's beautiful. Mordecai. Well, I deeply resonate with everything that Bader just shared. Those two verses have definitely been hallmarks of what God has been speaking to me recently. As I shared earlier, I'm on the heels of two years of feeling like God is squeezing me. And no matter how hard I try to get the outcomes that I'm seeking, the Lord seems to have other kinds of outcomes <laughs> that don't fall in my category of success. And actually a week and a half, I think 10 days before everything kind of went crazy on this side, I felt like the Lord asked me if I will give him permission to squeeze me again. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the question that keeps asking is, do you trust me? Are you willing to ignore the normal human signals of my favor and just trust me? And uh, that's a hard one because you just 
you know, am I doing the wrong thing? Am I missing your purposes? And in this season, I feel like God is he's squeezing all of us. And it's not out of a desire to hurt us, but to produce in us something that is unique. And it is a choice for us as children of God on whether we cooperate with his discipline or not. The discipline is not so much about punishing us. It's not about punishing. It's about helping us grow to become who he's called us to be and see things as he sees them and respond to things the way he is calling us to respond to them. And anyway, so that's kind of what God has been speaking to me. And um, a whole bunch of lamentation psalms have been extra meaningful to me in this season. And actually that last verse from, I think it's Habakkuk, that Badel mentioned, um, very powerful. Let me pray for you all on behalf of the listening community. Heavenly Father, we lift up these two brothers, these two men. We ask that you would continue to bless them. Dear Lord, we ask that you would allow them to know you, to be protected by you, to be able to be faithful through this ordeal. I just ask that you protect their families, that your will would come about on earth and Israel, Palestine, as it is in heaven. And dear Lord, I turn this prayer back on us and ask that these really beautiful, important lessons that you are teaching Mordecai and Badr would be the lessons that you're teaching us. Dear Lord, the battles may not seem as apparent as maybe they are to Badr and Mordecai this morning, where we are in Kansas City or Seattle or London or Cape Town, but they are there. Dear Lord, I ask that you would allow us all to be able to lead in such a way that we would be real with people, to be able to be vulnerable, and yet with a sense that we're on a mission. We're on a mission to advance your kingdom under your power, not ours, but under your power. And that gives us a sense of hope. It gives us a sense of gratitude that you've created us for such a time as this, with as much brokenness that exists all over the world. Dear Lord, you've called your faith-driven entrepreneurs, your business owners, to be in the midst of this battle today. Allow us to understand what the times are, like the sons of Iskar. Allow us to be able to walk in with the full armor of God in a way that we know that we have a joyful hope set out in front of us, a way that is this countercultural sign of hope and purpose that the rest of the world is looking for that doesn't point to us as strong leaders necessarily, but points to you as the healer, as the savior of the world. Find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 